Would you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2? Time for a few praises while you're opening your Bibles. Who would like to start us with a praise this morning? Praise him for the little one. If you don't believe in miracles, take a peek. Amen. One more. I praise God because he is worthy of our praise. We come to Genesis chapter 2. What we are doing is we are anticipating the cross in this season of the year. Um, Today we are anticipating Palm Sunday where Jesus for the first time publicly introduces himself as the king of kings. Um, So we are going to, in a pretty short period of time, cover about 4,148 years in our Bibles. We're going to go down to Genesis chapter 2, which is 4,115 years before Christ, and we're going to make our way to his announcement. Next week we will look at that day and anticipate the week leading up to the cross. And then the following Sunday, two weeks from today, we will celebrate Resurrection Day, which is the biblical term. Easter is a term that man has given it in name of a false god and a false goddess. So it is not an evil word for that purpose, but it is Resurrection Sunday as we know it from the Bible. Let's pray before we begin. Father, as we trace the story of your son from creation to the cross, I pray that you would give us a a little bit of his perspective and a little bit of his plan and a little bit of the extravagant, within free will, orchestration of God from Adam to the cross today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, 1 Peter 1.20 tells us that he was chosen before the cross. We just sang perfectly, um, you were, you are, and you always will be God. Before there was time, space, and matter, which came through the voice of the Son of God. Um, the Son of God was God already. He, wasn't, he doesn't come into existence in a manger. He doesn't come into existence in creation. He comes already existing. He is the Ancient of Days in Daniel 9. Both he and his father are called the Ancient of Days, meaning no beginning, no end, eternal God, always God. Um, And he has this plan. He has this conceived plan of beings in his image to worship him and to worship with him, his father. And that plan takes us from Genesis 1 to Revelation chapter 22. We have this extensive path that begins in the garden. He knows what will happen in the garden. He responds to what will happen in his time before there is a garden, knowing that it will cost him his life. So it is Jesus who in the beginning God said. It was 
in the Hebrew, in the, the earliest Hebrew, in the beginning, Elohim, Aleph Tav. Elohim meaning mighty one, spirit God, and Aleph Tav being the first letter in Hebrew and the last letter in Hebrew, the Son of God, the Alpha and the Omega of Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8 is the creator, is the spoken one. So we read in Hebrews chapter 1 that the Father is speaking to the Son saying it was your hands, it was you who shaped the heavens, it is you who brought everything into existence. So he does that and in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 we see this creation, we see everything being created, man being the last thing, the animals create, paraded before Adam, no suitable helper is found, he shows that to Adam, puts him in a deep sleep, creates woman from man, tells the two of them to rule over all creation on earth together. They are tempted. Adam first sins by allowing Satan to get between, allowing Eve to get between him and Satan. And then he sins by watching her eat, and then he sins by um, receiving it himself, and then he sins again. As we look in our Bibles in Genesis chapter 2, um, in Genesis chapter 2, back in verse 9, we see that these trees that are pleasing um, to man's eye and that they are good for food and that there is the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, um, he gives a command in verse 15, the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. That is the birth of the gospel. Free will. You will love me by choice. Guardrails. I will guide you to the truth and protect you from evil, but the choice is yours. Outcome. What is predestination? Predestination is that God has determined the outcome of man's choice, of woman's choice. And he says that if you eat from this tree of life effectively, you will live forever. If you eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly die. So he gives him free will, the promise of life, and the result of death, if you turn against me. One command, don't eat from this tree. It is too enticing to Adam. God always knew that. We pick it up in Genesis chapter 3. They have eaten of the tree. Yahweh has pursued Adam and caught up with him and he is talking with Adam, he's talking with Eve, and he's talking with the serpent. And we are introduced to the first prophecies in the Bible. Verse 12 of Genesis 3, the man, said, the man said in response to God's question to him, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So this is Adam's lie now on top of allowing Eve to be between him 
and Satan, allowing Eve to eat, and then eating himself. And then Eve, in this context, tells the truth. Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So Paul would explain to us in 1 Corinthians 11 and then 1 Timothy chapter 2 that Adam trespassed, he transgressed, he took a law and he said, no, I will do this. Paul also explains to us that, that Eve was telling the truth. She was deceived. It was pleasing to her eye and it appeared to be good for her and Satan was reinforcing that, and he was deceiving her. So she says, truthfully, he deceived me. So God turned to Satan. Reading on. Verse 14, then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, notice what he's specifically addressing, deceiving Eve. Because you have the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. So I won't get into this, the, literally what's being spoken here. Satan is not a serpent. Satan is disguised as a serpent. So they have found fossils that go way back where snakes have legs. So the serpent that Satan uses to deceive man is cursed. The serpent is cursed, meaning that from now on, snakes will crawl on their bellies. So from this moment, a creature created by God is going to be cursed because it was used to deceive Eve. Now we receive a prophecy concerning Satan as God addresses him. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Here is the prophecy. He, the descendant of the woman, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That is a prophecy 4,148 years ago of the cross. That because Adam and Eve took the title deed to the earth, if we go back into Genesis 1, God commands the man and the woman to rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. He gives them the title deed to planet earth. In the moment where they ate the fruit, they took that title deed and they handed it to Satan. It will now be purchased back at the cross. So not only will be the souls of human beings that will be purchased at the cross, but the right to the title deed of the earth will be purchased back. And that is why Satan correctly says to Jesus when he tempts him in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry, I can give this to you for it was given to me. It's true. And he is trying to deceive Christ himself to keep him from the cross because if he goes to the cross, it won't be Satan's to give anymore. And John chapter 8 explains that to us. 
Turn to Genesis chapter 26. There are ten generations from Adam. Oh, excuse me, Genesis 9. I'm sorry about that. Genesis 9, we will go there first. There are ten generations from Adam to Noah. And when you see the years there, that's a hundred and or that's a lot, 165.7 years per generation, showing the length of man initially. But we see something that can be easily overlooked. We know um, when Jacob approaches Yahweh, he approaches him as the God of Abraham and Isaac. And he says in, I think, Genesis 32, that if you will go with me, if you will give me my daily needs and take me where you want me to go, then you will be my God. So from that moment forward, he becomes the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it is myth that before that, in verse 26, as the Noetic covenant, the covenant that God made with Noah, he says in verse 26, he also said, praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. So before he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is the God of Shem. So when we hear about anti-Semitism today, it is anti-Shemism. Semites come from Shem, which is ironic because the people that are known most for being anti-Semitic are Arabs. And they descended from Shem also because Abraham, ten generations from Shem, would give birth to two sons. He would give a birth to Ishmael, who is the father of the Islamic world today, and he would give birth to Isaac, who is the father of the Jewish world today. So Semites are effectively descendants of this Shem, who comes off of the ark, born um, from Noah as one of the three sons listed. Now let's move to Genesis chapter 12. So we've gone 10 generations from Adam to Shem. We will go 10 generations from Shem to Abraham, who is the reason that Shem was blessed. And the reason that he is the God of Shem is because this man of faith named Abraham would come 10 generations later. You see the generations are shorter there as there are 10 generations here. So when we read in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, this is God announcing the gospel through Abraham. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. I believe this is the that probably that statement there is the only reason God hasn't judged America yet because of what Donald Trump did a few years ago in blessing Israel. Reading on, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So in Romans chapter 4 and in Galatians chapter 3, Paul explains, and he explains specifically in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8, that the scriptures foresaw God reaching the Gentiles. And it was announced through Abraham, 
And then Paul quotes, all nations will be blessed through you. So when he gives the second half of verse 3, Paul says that's the gospel, that that is God reaching Jews and Gentiles, Romans 1.16, and he is doing it, he is announcing it through Abraham, through whom ultimately the Messiah would come. Turn to Genesis chapter 25. A few years later, we have years marked in all of these passages. So Isaac is 40 years old, as we see in chapter 25 and verse 20. We see in chapter 25 and verse 26 that he is 60 years old, that he prayed for 20 years for Rebekah to become pregnant. We see that they are crying out to God, trying to understand, and, and Rebecca in particular, she has a, a very active pregnancy, that there literally are two, God will tell her, nations wrestling in her womb. So women, you have felt babies kick, this would have been extreme. This would have been probably Rebecca not getting much sleep, it would have been her stomach probably visibly almost to people around her with these two babies wrestling in her womb. And we're talking again about the enemies of God and the followers of God coming from the same womb and being birthed in the same womb. So we pick it up and we read verse 23. Um, the end of verse 22, Rebecca goes to inquire of Yahweh. Verse 23 the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the old will serve the younger. So what happens is that this younger son, she's giving birth to twins, so very close together, two people are born from the same womb, and the first one comes out with the second one holding on to his heel. The first one is Esau, who is the father of the Edomites, who traces from this moment, 2,000 years forward, to Jesus' birth in Bethlehem through Herod, a descendant of Esau. The Amalekites descend from Esau. These people who hate Israel come from Rebekah's womb. And it says that the one will be stronger and the older will serve the younger. So when David, the man after God's own heart, becomes king of all Israel after he has ruled seven years in Hebron, he takes over Jerusalem. All through the Bible, Terry and I have just read through the book of Judges together, and in the book of Judges, Canaanites, enemies of God, are still controlling Jebus. Jebus is Jerusalem. So earlier, all the way back to Abraham, Christ comes out of Salem. It's actually Jebus, but it's called Salem because it will be called Jerusalem. So God's throne has always been there, but it is David who takes it back. It is David who makes, among other things, Edomites become slaves to Israel. So he fulfills a prophecy given by God to Rebekah that the older will serve the younger, and we move forward. Let's go to Genesis chapter 49. 
We have come forward now another 147 years, a short span seemingly in the Bible, a long span to us. In Genesis chapter 49, we can put together from chapter um, Genesis chapter 47 and verse 28 that we can see that he is 147 years old. So all these things are marked out. He, he comes to Egypt. Pharaoh says, how old are you? He says, 130. We come here to the end of his life. We will see in verses 29 through 33 that as soon as Jacob blesses these sons, he dies. In Genesis 47 verse 28, we see that he's 147 years. So these dates on your sheet there are not guesses. They come from the Bible. And while he is prophesying over each son, he is speaking and he is laying his hands on them, he comes to his son Judah and he says in verse 8, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my sons. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? And then here's the important part of this prophecy. The scepter, which the ruler holds, will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. So we keep getting markers that narrow down. We see that from Eve's womb will come someone who will crush Satan. We see later on that in Genesis, we see in chapter 9 that the God of Shem. So we're directed through one of Noah's three sons. Ten generations later, all nations will be blessed through you, Abraham. And Abraham now becomes the one through whom the gospel comes. Abraham's grandson, his, his great-grandson, is being prophesied over by his grandson. You, Judah, are the lion's cub. You are the lioness. You will be the one who will hold the scepter until the one to whom it belongs comes. So it is narrowed down to Judah in Genesis 49. Turn to Exodus chapter 12. This is a little bit out of the order of the things that we are doing today, but I want to make it simple for you as we advance in time. In Exodus chapter 12, we have the Jews preparing to leave. This is this day that is being given to Moses when the angel of the Lord, the angel of death in this case, will come over and pass over the houses and the blood, this day will be given to us in Leviticus chapter 23. This is Nisan the 14th, 1446 B.C. at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. That's how specific these commands are that Moses is being given as they are exiting um, Egypt going towards the promised land. So we begin verse 1 of chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month, this is Nisan, 
It is a different name here, but it is the month of Nisan as we go forward in the scriptures. This month is to be for you the first month, not their first calendar year month, but their first spiritual month every year, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of the lamb needed in accordance with each person, what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be a year old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of this month when the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. So we are being told here, the month of Nisan, the 14th day, three o'clock in the afternoon is when twilight begins for Jews. So we're given very specific instructions here. Um, so if we went to Luke chapter 22, verses 15 and 16, Jesus is saying to his disciples, I have longed and looked forward to celebrating this Passover with you. This is Passover at its introduction in Exodus 12, and Jesus is celebrating the Passover in Galilee, which celebrates the Passover a day before Jerusalem celebrates it, so that when he goes in Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 46, it, he will explain to us that darkness comes over the earth from noon until three in the afternoon, and at three in the afternoon, Jesus gives up his spirit to the Father. So, 1,400 and what would it be? 79 years from this moment in Exodus, the Lamb will die on the cross on the 14th day of Nisan at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And Moses understood that when it was instituted. Those who truly followed Christ understood it all along. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. Saul has already become a corrupt king. Samuel is the leader who followed God his whole life before Saul. He is so corrupt by this time that Samuel lies about why he is going to Bethlehem because he doesn't want Saul to kill him. So he is going to Bethlehem to anoint a man after God's own heart and he doesn't know who it is. So we can start by looking in verse 6 when the first, the oldest, this virile and strong-looking son comes out. Verse 6, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. 
But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So another son comes, and then another son comes, and another son comes, and Samuel thinks, this is the one. Okay, no, this is the one. Okay, no, this is the one. Is this it? Well, I have a youngest son, Jesse says. Um, we leave him with the sheep. Samuel says, call him in. Verse 12. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David. Samuel then went to Ramah. So this is shortly before this young boy would stand in a valley facing a nine-and-a-half-foot-tall man, daring anyone from Israel to come out. But the Spirit of the Lord is already on David. And he says to this giant, You bring sword and spear, I come to you in the name of the Lord, and it is him that you are mocking, and I will take your life from you today. This young boy says, and he does exactly what he says he is going to do. So we've gone from Eve's womb to Shem's line, through Abraham, down to Judah, one of the 12 great-grandsons of Abraham. Now we are coming to David as we come to 2 Samuel, if you would turn there, chapter 7. This is about 45 years later in David's life. He becomes king at 30. He is now late in his reign as a king, wants to build a temple. God says, no, you have blood on your hands, but I want to promise you the throne of my son, God would tell David, to you through your son. <coughs> so we pick it up in verse 12. Actually, with the statement at the end of verse 11 there where it says the Lord, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and the rest of your and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So we are now narrowed down to one of the smallest clans in Judah, from the Judah the son of Jacob, from Jacob to Abraham to Shem, all the way back to Eve. Now we are to this very small clan, these Ephrathites, Bethlehem Ephrathah, so Jesse is an Ephrathite, and he lives in Bethlehem, and it is Bethlehem is specifically six miles south of Jerusalem. Their primary occupancy or their occupations is to make the lambs for the sacrifices in Jerusalem. So 
in the springtime, they were protecting and raising these lambs so that they could be taken and purchased or taken and brought to Passover during the Passover lamb sacrifice that was given to Moses. And now the promise is going through David. Turn to Malach, or excuse me, Micah chapter 5 in your Bibles, a little bit harder to find than when we've been looking at. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, near the end of the Old Testament. Though he is very late in the Old Testament, this is a, a prophet who prophesied before Daniel, not long before Daniel. So we come to Micah, and we're going to turn to chapter 5. And it's interesting, the Bible does it, and we will do it with the Bible. When Jesus is born, we are taken to Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, so that we know who this is in the manger, and where, why he is being born in Bethlehem. When we come to Micah chapter 5 in prophecy, we are not referring to his birth. We are referring to his sacrifice, and we are referring to his kingdom. So the one who comes through David as king will be the sacrifice. We go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, where it says, He will crush your head, Satan, and you will strike his heel, meaning the cross. So we have another picture of the cross in verse 1, Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a, for a siege is laid against it. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. So if we went to the Gospels in Matthew 27 and verse 30 in particular, one of the things the soldiers did is they, is they stripped him of his clothes and they, they put a crown of thorns on his head. He would have had blood just profusely pouring down his face. And they put a rod in his hand and they're saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Hail, King of the Jews! And they're taking sticks and they're hitting him in the head. And that's what Mike is writing about when he says, they will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. He is prophesying Matthew 27, 30, where they are beating Christ with clubs, preparing him for the cross, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They put a purple robe on him to mock him as a king, a crown of thorns to mock him as a king, and they are hitting him with their fists, Mark says, and Matthew says they're also hitting him in the head with clubs. So Isaiah 52 says that by the time they bring him to the cross, he doesn't look human. That's what Micah is writing about. And then he writes about the king. Verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, this is the clan of David, out of you will come for me one who will rule over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So Micah is picking up way back from Jacob when Jacob says, 
the scepter will not depart from you, Judah, until the ruler to whom it belongs comes and the, and the obedience of the nations will be his. And Micah says, this is the one born in Bethlehem. So while we look at Christmas to Micah 5, 1 and 2, it's really the cross and the return of Christ to set up his kingdom that is being prophesied in Micah chapter 2. Turn now backwards in your Bible to Daniel chapter 9, which is actually forward in time from the book of Micah. Daniel chapter 9. So Daniel gets a letter, if we went back to the beginning of this chapter, he gets a letter in the mail that we know as Jeremiah chapter 29. So Jeremiah tells us, and Daniel tells us, he gets this letter from Jeremiah. And until Jeremiah, the length of captivity of Judah in Babylon is not known. So in year 68 of captivity, Daniel gets a letter in the mail, Daniel chapter 9, and it says it will last 70 years. And it says way back in Moses um, chapter 4 and chapter 29 that you're going to be taken captive to Babylon. And it says, if from there you seek the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, he will bring you back. So he gets this letter from Jeremiah and he immediately puts on sackcloth and ashes and starts repenting. This man who we know of no sin in his life is repenting for himself and for the nation of Judah. And while he is doing this, Gabriel comes quickly, Daniel says, and stands in front of him. And he says, Daniel, God is here to answer you. So what God is going to do is give him a 490-year period in which everything related to sin will be dealt with by God in 490 years. So there are six aspects of sin and its relationship to man keeping man from God. And in 490 years, he is going to accomplish everything that will wipe out all six of them. Three of them he wipes out when he comes and goes to the cross. Three of them he wipes out when he comes the second time. So we're going to read in verse 24, seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city. Number one, to finish transgression. Number two, to put an end to sin. And number three, to atone for wickedness. He did that at the cross. Number four, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. He will do that at his second coming. So he goes on, Gabriel speaking to Daniel, know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore, and remember this, rebuild Jerusalem, until the anointed one, a.k.a. Messiah in Hebrew, or Christ in the Greek, the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. So that's 69 sevens. So he is saying that of these, four, uh, of these 70 times seven, 
all of them will be this one time period from the time the decree goes out to rebuild Jerusalem till the time the anointed one comes will be exactly 483 years. 70, or 69 times 7, 483 years. He is giving him specifics. And that's why Daniel is too overwhelming for people that don't believe in prophecy because they say no one could be that accurate. So, no one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. That's the book of Nehemiah. Verse 26, the first half. After the 62 sevens, in other words, after he comes, the anointed one will be put to death and have nothing. So he is pointing to the coming of the king, and he says that will be 483 years. And after he comes, they will kill him. He is talking about what we know as Palm Sunday, and that in just a few days after that, they will kill him. They will put him to death, and he will have nothing. Same language as Isaiah 53. So now in your Bible, turn to Zechariah, the second to last book. We're doing this in chronological order. Zechariah chapter 9. And since John is easier to find, hold that in your finger and go to John chapter 12. The book of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, chapter 12. As John is more than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he's, he's going to every prophecy. And he's painting a picture for us that fills in every blank. So, while you hold on to John, let's read Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So as you flip over to John now, and we begin reading in verse 12. The next day the crowd that had come from the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. It is highly likely that the Holy Spirit is at work here, but it is also highly likely that these people know. They know Daniel. They know Micah. They know Zechariah. And they're hearing... He's coming. It's today. Hosanna. Glory in the highest. Take your coats off. Lay them down. Let the donkey walk on your coat. It's the king. It's our Messiah. It's the Lord of heaven and earth. And he's coming here now. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So they are 
outside of Jerusalem. They are a distance away on the Mount of Olives and the poorest people of Israel are living here and he's going to come from the top of this mountain and when he, he proceeds to go through them before he gets in the gate to go into the city of Jerusalem, they're laying down their clothes and they're pricking up palm branches and they're saying, it is the king, Hosanna, it is the king. Blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And he walks through that joy. And we read on, verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, he quotes Zechariah 9.9 so that we know that Zechariah and Daniel are talking about Palm Sunday. Verse 16, at his feet, at first, his disciples did not understand this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. There's a proof of the Gospel of John right there. Because John says, we didn't get it. We didn't understand. We're focused on Jerusalem. We're focused on the temple. These people are quoting Zechariah. And we didn't get it until he rose from the dead. John is being honest with us. Turn to Nehemiah about a third of the way through your Bible. The book of Nehemiah. If you find Psalms, if that's easier, go backwards a little bit through Job, through Esther, and then find Nehemiah, chapter 2. Nehemiah, chapter 2. Now it's one of the places where it will be helpful for you to look at your notes to see that Micah was 730 B.C. Daniel was 539 B.C. 19 years later, Zechariah writes that when he comes, what Daniel was talking about, you will see him gentle and riding on a donkey, which John quotes. And then when you come to Nehemiah, you see that it is 76 years after Zechariah, that is Nehemiah chapter 2. It is 95 years after an 80-year-old Daniel says that when the decree goes out to rebuild Jerusalem, the clock starts ticking. So it's almost a century after Daniel made that prophecy and the clock is going to start. So when we read Nehemiah chapter 2, in the month of Nisan, this is where Moses was instructed to put the Passover. This would have been to us March 444 B.C. So we begin reading there. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, so you can go to secular historical books and find this exact date. When wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? 
this can be nothing but sadness of heart. So we have this relationship built between this king in the Artaxerxes. Heaven is operating for a while now from a Persian government because Israel is not effective anymore. So Artaxerxes is now watching over the provinces that include Israel. We have a friendship so that this king, a wine tester and provider, would have been a trusted person because that's a good way to get rid of kings. So he would probably taste the wine before the king would drink it, and the king is close enough to him to say, what's wrong? Something's hurting you. What is it? Verse 3, right before verse 3, he says, I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be, look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? He pauses and prays to him within himself to heaven. God, help me right now. Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, this cupbearer to the most powerful man on earth, if it pleases you, king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, request number two, if it pleases the king, may I have letters, a decree in Daniel 9, to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. The governors of the trans-Euphrates, Hornballot and, um, I can't remember the other one, Sandballot, the Hornite, was one of them. But the trans-Euphrates people in the book of Nehemiah, they hate the Jews. They will not allow this to happen. We're going to do everything we can to stop them. So king, you're over them. Will you send a letter to them to say, back off? Leave them alone. Reading on verse 8. And, number 3, may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so that he will give me timber to make the beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. So he gives three requests. He brings a, a cup of wine and he's a servant in a foreign kingdom. And the king says, what's wrong? Something's pulling at your heart. And he says, well, why shouldn't it be? Jerusalem is my home. It's my people. It's where I grew up. My grandparents are buried there. And it's a mess. What do you want to do? Or what can I do? And he prays, God, please help me. Let these be your words and not my words. Well, I want you to let me leave my servitude. 
go back to my country and rebuild it. Is there anything else you want? Well, I want you, most powerful king, head of 127 provinces worldwide, I want you to tell everybody between here and there to allow me to go safely. Oh, and can you talk to Asaph for me? Because I don't have anything. Would he provide all of the building materials for free and send them to Jerusalem so that I have something to build with? And Nehemiah in his flesh is probably thinking, God, am I supposed to ask all of that? And because the gracious hand of my God was with me, he granted my request. Boom. The clock starts. Daniel says as soon as the decree goes out to rebuild Jerusalem, it will be 483 years until Jesus rides in on a donkey. That's almost five centuries. So now let's go to Luke chapter 19. 483 years later, same month. In Luke chapter 19, as we're coming out of him bringing repentance to Zacchaeus, we read verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So we don't realize that this glorious story of Zacchaeus is right before he rides into Jerusalem, and he tells this parable right before he rides into Jerusalem. Verse 11, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. It would have if they would have accepted him. The king is here. Verse 12, he said, a man of noble birth. This is a parable. This is a picture of his coming and how Israel has treated him while he comes. So verse 12, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then ret to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. This is a picture of the gospel coming to people. I am offering you a kingdom. I am sharing with you what I have. You need to repent. He's been saying that all throughout Luke. You need to repent, turn from your sins, honor me as Lord, Master, and King because I'm coming back. Verse 13, so he called his ten servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. We just read in Luke in Sunday school this morning that every follower of Christ bears fruit. He's asking them to bear fruit. Verse 14, but his subject hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for his servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, good, my good servant, his master replied, because you have 
been trustworthy with a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. He's talking about the millennium in a picture. Verse 18, the second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. And this next picture is a picture of someone who hears the gospel, believes it's true, accepts that he is who he says he is, but doesn't repent. Then, verse 20, another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a, in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap where you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not, why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with inheritance, or with interest, I'm sorry. Verse 24, then he says to those standing by, Take his manna away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. So he gives this important in parable of the gospel of people who hear it. Once you hear it, you have faith. It's true. He's telling the truth. I believe it. And Jesus would explain. Some people will follow him for a little while, and then, then they'll feel challenged, and they want to go back to having control of their life. These are the wicked servants. These are the people who have heard the truth. These are people in Israel. These are people in the church. And in this atmosphere, he's now going to fulfill Daniel's prophecy. Verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany, at a hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, Zechariah 9, 9, which no one has ever ridden. Until, untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord, Kyrios, needs it. In other words, those who were sent ahead went and found it just as it had been told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. These are the people outside the city who know who it is. Verse 37. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices, for all the miracles they had seen, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now he's getting closer to the city. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. 
Daniel 9, 26. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Isaiah 6, verse 43, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build, this was on Jeopardy Friday, um, when Titus took down the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, verse 43, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. This is when they came in and destroyed the temple about 37 years after this moment. Verse 44, they will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another. That's why you can't find the temple in Jerusalem in 2023. Why? Why, Jesus? Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. I already told you that it would be 483 years from Nehemiah receiving the decree to the day I ride in. Zechariah says when you're looking for it, look for him riding on a colt. Look for people praising him and look for him coming into the city and Jesus said, because you don't get it, because you've rejected me, I'm going to harden you. This temple that you worship rather than me is going to be destroyed. And you and your children within the walls of this city will be dashed to the ground by Romans because you refuse to acknowledge me. So next week, as we come into Palm Sunday, consider the tension that's in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we have a Messiah, a Savior, a Lord, who knew all of this before it happened. And somehow, Paul writes in Hebrews, that for the joy of saving us, he approached the cross. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.